Section 67 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 18, Part 1, The Church and Reform, by R. V. Lawrence. Chapter 18, The Church and Reform. The necessity of reform and of a spiritual regeneration of Catholicism had been acknowledged again and again at the opening of the sixteenth century by men of high position in the Church. Time after time it was admitted by the Sacred College, and at each conclave the whole body of cardinals pledged themselves to reform. Commissions were appointed, but nothing came of them, and the Fifth Lateran Council, 1512 to 1517, instead of reforming the evils that had resulted from excessive centralization, did little more than lay down the plenitudo potestatus of the papal monarchy with an insistency that had hitherto found expression only in the pages of curialist writers. The vested interests of the officials of the Roman court were in fact too strong for the forces working for reform, and the measures which might have obviated the schism and nipped the revolution in the bud were not taken until it was too late. The opponents of reform had the strength of a group of men working together with a definite knowledge of what they wanted to defend. The Catholic reformers, on the other hand, were scattered, voices in the desert, with no means of common action. Nor, when opportunities occurred to them, were they for long agreed as to the particular lines reform should take. The seeds of the later divisions among the Catholic reformers existed from the very first, and the course of events soon led to those differences becoming acute. For men desired reform from very different motives. The ascetic temperament saw nothing but the moral abuses and the corruption of the clergy. The humanist desired a greater freedom of thought, and a certain toleration of divergences of opinion, which was abhorrent to the doctrinal reformer. The latter shared with the humanist the wish for a reconstruction of the traditional dogma, but wished to see the line between orthodoxy and heterodoxy drawn with no uncertain hand. Ultimately, two great parties evolved themselves among the Catholic reformers. The one desired conciliation and the discovery of common ground on which the old and the new ideas might be harmonized. The other, while sharing with the former party its indignation at the moral corruption of the Church, yet parted company with it with regard to the reform of doctrine. The supremacy of St. Thomas and of the great scholastics must be preserved, and the whole body of dogma which the Middle Ages had evolved must be retained. Concession of any kind was not to be heard of, and this party believed that a further increase of the powers of the papacy and of centralization of authority was the surest safeguard of the church the former party wished for a real catholic reformation the latter succeeded in reducing a movement which started with so great a promise to little more than a counter-reformation it will be our purpose in this chapter to sketch the steps by which this was brought about and all real reform such as might have conciliated nascent protestantism and preserved the unity of the western church was made impossible the aspirations of scattered individuals for reform first found a nucleus and an organization in the Oratory of Divine Love, founded at Rome towards the end of Pontificate of Leo X. 
this famous society numbered among its members some of the most learned prelates and upright laymen who were connected with the court of rome in that day they met for prayer and meditation in the little church of santi silvestro e dorotea e trastevere and discussed means for the purification of the church almost every tendency of thought and temperament among the catholic reformers was to be found there caraffa and sotoletto Gitano de ten and giberti were alike members the ascetic and the humanist the practical and the doctrinal reformer met together and worked in harmony their numbers were some fifty or sixty in all in the last years of the pagan renaissance when its weaker elements were coming to the surface and when decadence rather than a new interest in life was becoming its keynote there was thus growing in numbers and influence a party full of promise for the future history of the church a stem an almost puritan moral ideal was combined with a belief that there was no essential antagonism between faith and culture between profane learning and christian knowledge as the great medieval theologians and scholastics had interpreted christianity to their age and had harmonized the divergent elements in the knowledge of their time so now in the oratory of divine love the feeling found expression that the work had to be done afresh and that the new revelation given to men by the renaissance must be incorporated into the system of christian thought nor was it only the desire for a closer alliance between christianity and humanism which bound many of these men together augustine had always been a force in the medieval church and the augustinian elements in his theology were ever again asserting themselves and claiming supremacy the attraction of augustine felt so strongly by luther was not felt only by him the end of the fifteenth and the beginning of the sixteenth centuries were marked by a renewed study of st augustine in many quarters and by a consequent revival of the pauline ideas of justification in different forms as reginald pole said in one of his letters the jewel which the church had so long kept half concealed was again brought to light this trend of thought found expression in the writings of thomas de vio cardinal cogitan and for some time was looked on with favor in the highest quarters of the church that section of the oratory of divine love which wished to spiritualize theology and to deepen the basis of the christian life found ample support in the accepted theology of the day venice was the home from which came many of the thinkers of this type in the oratory of divine love after the sack of rome in fifteen twenty seven its members were scattered but in a short time many of them met again at venice where they found new recruits the senator gasparo cantarini and gregorio cortese abbot of st giorgio maggiore were the most influential of the new members giberti had become bishop of verona in fifteen twenty four and his household became a new centre for the reforming movement his administration of his diocese sent an example to other prelates and his reform of his clergy served in many ways as a model to the fathers at trent though he himself did not live to take any active part in that assembly at padua reginald pole spent many years and though he was only a layman his manner of life and conduct of his household were not unworthy to be compared with those of giberti the university of padua numbered then among its teachers some of the most eminent scholars of the day and it was one of the centres of christian renaissance 
Modena also was one of the strongholds of the Catholic reformers. Giovanni Moroni, who afterwards with difficulty escaped the charge of heresy, was its bishop. Sadaletto, bishop of Carpentras, Gregorio Cartesi, and other leaders of the movement either were Modenese or had been connected with Modena. The union of scholarship and holiness of life with zeal for practical reform, as exemplified in these men, is rare in the history of the Church. The movement for reform from within, thus inaugurated in Italy, did not become a power in official circles in Rome until the pontificate of Paul III. The paper reforms of the Fifth Lateran remained a dead letter, while the good intentions of Adrian VI came to nothing. His reign, nevertheless, will ever be memorable from his confession that the source of the poison which was corrupting the whole church was in the papal court, nay, even in the pontiffs themselves. Ignorant of the world, ignorant of the forces at work in Rome itself, Adrian was helpless. If he had had any measure of success, his reforms would have been a moral and practical kind alone. Having lived most of his life in cloisters, he knew little of the change that had come over human thought. St. Thomas was his master, and he did not wish to go beyond the work of the greatest of medieval thinkers. Adrian was a precursor of, and later counter-reformation, rather than of the peace-loving Contarini and the learned Ghiberti. Clement VII, of the House of Medici, was well-meaning and wished to remove the worst abuses in the Church. The hell through which the papacy passed during his pontificate was indeed paved with good intentions, but they all came to nothing. The cares of the temporal power and the interest of his family left little time for the reformation of society. Still, in 1524, the Roman congregation was set up to reform the clergy, but in the troublous years which followed, leading up to the sack of Rome, little could be done. Schiberti, who, with Nicholas Schomburg, the Cardinal of Capua, appears to have influenced Clement's policy in those early years of his reign, had little time to spare from secular affairs. And it was not until he finally retired to his bishopric of Verona that he obtained an opportunity of playing the part of a reformer. Thus, while the Teutonic lands were rapidly falling away from the church, nothing was done in Rome itself to heal the abuses which all men acknowledged to be crying for reform. There was one remedy for the church's evils, which was a nightmare to Clement. A reform of the church by a free general council was a cry which grew in intensity and sprang up from many quarters as Clement's vacillating reign dragged on its way. Luther had appealed from the Pope to a free general council, and the appeal was echoed in the German diets. Charles himself took up the idea, but, as it soon came to be seen, what Charles meant by a general council was very different from that desired by the Protestants, the enthusiasm for it soon cooled down in Germany. And the idea of a national council for the settlement of the affairs of religion took its place. At times, when it was a useful weapon to be used against the Pope, Charles also gave the idea of a national council his support, but he sincerely desired the convocation of an ecumenical council and he fell back on the alternative only when the conduct of the papacy forced his hands. General councils had ominous memories for the papacy since the days of Pisa, Constance, and Basel, and Clement no doubt felt that the government of the church during his pontificate would not stand the ordeal of a public examination. 
general councils were apt to get out of hand, and no one could foresee whether they might ultimately lead. Clement succeeded in putting off the evil day at the price of letting events in Germany take their own course. With Clement's successor, Alessandro Farnese, who took the title of Paul III, 1534, a new era began, and at last the party of Catholic reformers found their opportunity. One of the first acts of the new pope was to confer a cardinal's hat upon Gasparo Contarini, and soon after Carafa, Sadaletto, and Pole also received the sacred purple. The leaders among the Catholic reformers were summoned to Rome. On January 30, 1536, a bull was read in the consistory for the reform of many of the papal offices, but it was not published and in the summer of the same year Paul appointed a commission of nine to report on the reforms that were needful. The nine members of the commission were Contarini, Carafa, Sadaletto, Giberti, Pol, Aliando, Federigo Fregoso, Gregorio Cortese, and the master of the sacred palace, Tommaso Ladia. Their report, presented in 1537, is the well-known Concilium Delectorium Carta Nalium et Olorium Prolatorium de Amandada Ecdicia. The great principle, to which they return again and again, is that laws ought not to be dispensed with save for grave cause, and that even no money should be taken for dispensation. To the system of money payments they trace the chief evils of the Roman court. Everything could be obtained for money, however hurtful it might be to the general welfare of the church. The report does not confine itself to the evils at the fountainhead. The whole church was infected with corruption. Unfit persons were habitually ordained and admitted to benefices. Pensions and charges were imposed upon the new revenues of benefices, which made it impossible for the holder to live an honest life. Expectatives and reservations had a demoralizing effect. Residence was generally neglected by the bishops and clergy, and exemptions from the authority of the ordinary enabled leaders of the scandalous lives to persist in their wickedness. The regular clergy were no better than the seculars. Scandals were frequent in the religious houses, and the privileges of the orders enabled unfit persons to hear confessions. The cardinals were as bad as the bishops with regard to residence and accumulated offices in their persons. Indulgences were excessive in number, and superstitious practices were too often encouraged. Much evil had followed from the granting of marriage dispensations, and absolutions for the sin of simony could be obtained for a mere song. In Rome itself the services were slovenly conducted, and the whole priesthood was sordid. Loose women were openly received even in the houses of cardinals. Unbelief grew apace, and unnecessary disputations on trivial points disturbed the faith of the vulgar. It was the duty of the mother and mistress of all churches to lead the way in the amending of these evils. Simultaneously, with the appointment of this remarkable commission for reform, Paul III published a bull, May 29, 1536, summoning a general council to meet at Mantua in May 1537, and a bull of reformation was published in September 1536. But the renewal of war prevented the council from assembling, and its meeting was deferred. Meanwhile, little was done to carry out the proposals of the reform commission. 
it was decided on the suggestion of the cardinal of capua nicholas schomburg not to publish the report as it revealed so many grave scandals in connection with the holy see the document was however privately printed in rome and by some means a copy reached germany it was republished there with scoffing comments this incident shows that there was little chance of papal attempts at reform being regarded in germany as seriously intended a beginning was indeed made at rome the offices of the datary the chancery and the penitentiary were overhauled and a report signed by contarini caraffa aleander and baja the concilium quatar delectum apollo the third super reformation scumate romane ecclesiase was in the autumn of fifteen thirty seven presented to the pope but in reality little seems to have been done the general council never met at mantua the duke did not desire its presence in his territory and the war between charles and francis made it practically impossible the council was then summoned to meet at vicenza on may first sixteen thirty eight but it again had to be postponed it soon became clear that the pope's zeal for reform was rapidly waning contarini did his best to stir him up to action in his epistola de potestati pontificis and uso clavium and in his de postate pontivitz in compositionibus he emphasized the propositions that the papacy was a sacred charge and that its powers were to be used for the good of the church and not to its destruction in all contarini's writings the conception of the papacy as a monarchy and not a tyranny appears it is a monarchy over free men and its powers are to be used according to the light of reason though the catholic reformers held strongly to the divine mission of the papacy in the church they distinguished carefully between the legitimate and the illegitimate exercise of its authority freely the papacy had received freely it should give the whole official system of the curia with its fees and extortions had become a scandal and iniquitous traffic in sacred things had grown up contarini appealed to the pope to root out effectively this canker which was destroying the spiritual life of the church in november fifteen thirty eight contarini travelled with paul the third to austria and they discussed his writings our good old man as contarini calls him in a letter to pole made him sit by his side and talked with him about the reform of the compositions the pope informed him that he had read his treatise and spoke to him with such christian feeling that his hopes were thus awakened anew at the moment when he was about to give way to despair sarpi doubts the sincerity of paul the third with regard to reform he believes that the pope took up various projects of reform merely as an excuse to prove that a council was unnecessary but sarpi's prejudice still weighs blinds him to any good action on the part of a pope and there is little doubt that paul was in earnest in wishing to remove the graver abuses of the papal court but he was an old man when he ascended the papal throne and his energy did not increase with years moreover he was not a zealot possessed with one overmastering idea the interests of his family his own personal comfort and the dignity of the holy see were to him things that were not to be lightly risked in the carrying out of any scheme of reform nothing came immediately of his talk with contarini in the autumn of fifteen thirty eight but in the spring of fifteen forty a fresh as it appeared 
a more energetic beginning of reform was made in Rome. In April, Gioberti was summoned from his diocese to give the sacred college the benefit of his experience, and commissions were appointed for carrying out reforms in the apostolic chamber, the rota, the chancery, and the penitentiary. The hopes with which the pontificate had begun were fully revived. Giovanni Moroni, the papal nuncio in Germany, had again and again in his letters pressed upon the Pope the necessity of a council and of energetic measures of reform, if the Church was to be saved in Germany. Moroni's instructions ordered him to be as conciliatory as possible, and it seemed that moderate men on both sides might arrange an understanding. The proposal of Faber, the Bishop of Vienna, to condemn as heretical a series of propositions selected from Lutheran writers was disapproved of by the Pope. The failure so far of the attempts to assemble a general council made Charles fall back on a series of national conferences, in which endeavors were made to find some common terms of agreement that might serve as a basis for the action of the ecumenical council when it should meet. It was in pursuance of this policy that the famous religious colloquy took place at Ratisbon in April 1541, after preliminary meetings at Hagno, June 1540, and at Worms, November 1540. The detailed story of the negotiations belongs to the history of Germany, but the discussions which took place are of interest to us as showing the extent of the reconstruction of the church system, to which the most liberal of the Catholic reformers were prepared to consent. Agreement was arrived at on the fundamental articles of original sin, free will, and justification. With regard to the last, a neutral formula was arrived at midway between the Lutheran doctrine and that formulated later at Trent. Justification was twofold, and depended both on inherent and on imputed righteousness. It was attained by faith, but that faith must be living and active. The marriage of priests might be permitted, but not encouraged, as also communion in both kinds on the general doctrine of the sacraments, and especially on the doctrine of the Eucharist, agreement was found more difficult. And when the papal prerogatives came on for discussion, a clear divergence of opinion showed itself. It was clear that, after concessions on both sides, a considerable gulf still remained between them. Moreover, even if the peacemakers could come to terms, there were still Luther and the Pope to reckon with. Luther was suspicious, even unduly suspicious, of all papal advances, and he refused to believe in the sincerity of proposals in which his old adversary Eck had a share. The Pope, on the other hand, unhesitatingly rejected an ambiguous definition of the papal prerogative and of the doctrine of the sacraments, and the agreement on justification was viewed with suspicion in Rome, and only tolerated after much explanation. It was clear that no final settlement could be carried at the conference, which was accordingly brought to an end by the Emperor at the beginning of June 1541. Something at any rate had been gained, and the beginnings of a peaceful solution had been made. That complete success should have been attained at Ratisbon was probably impossible from the first. The exigencies of the political situation at the time made it the interest of the enemies of Charles to prevent a settlement of the religious difficulties, which it was feared would strengthen his hands. 
moreover it was clear that the catholic reformers were no longer as united as they had been and their influence over the pope was evidently lessening Carafia was drifting apart from his colleagues and was rapidly becoming the leader of a party whose spirit was very different from that of the gracious idealist with whom he had been associated the future of catholicism lay in the balance and the next few years would determine for centuries the attitude of the roman church towards the modern world its politics and its thought it may be that when the colloquy of ratisbon took place it was already too late to save the unity of the church in germany but to contemporaries even that did not seem quite hopeless it was difficult for men living in the midst of the drama to realize how far the world had moved from its old orbit and how few of the old landmarks remained to declare dogmatically however that the attempt at compromise made at ratisbon was doomed to failure from the first is to assume that protestantism and catholicism had already taken up the definite positions which they reached at the end of the century in the case of catholicism however it was only after a struggle the issue of which was long doubtful that its attitude was definitely determined the revival of religious life combined with a strict adherence to the old scholastic dogma the feeling as Carnesecchi put it that men had the catholic religion and only desired that it should be better preached revealed itself first in an awakening of the old religious orders and the formation of others to meet new needs the numerous exemptions from episcopal jurisdiction possessed by the old orders had given rise to many grave abuses and contributed to the slackening of their spiritual life spain the home of religious orthodoxy united with religious zeal led the way in reform the achievement of national unity at the end of the fifteenth century brought with it a revival of the spanish church the state used the church for its own purposes and the royal authority became all-powerful the spanish hierarchy though always fervently catholic was never ultramontane papal interference was carefully limited and with the aid of the revived inquisition ximenes reformed the spanish church the religious orders were brought under control and the morals of the spanish clergy soon compared favorably with those of the rest of christendom a revival of scholasticism in its thomist form took place of which the great dominican melchor cano became later the chief exponent stress was laid upon the divine right of the episcopate bishops were not merely curates of the pope the nobler sides of medieval christianity were again displayed to the world by the spanish church the darker side the horrors of the inquisition the intellectual intolerance and narrow outlook on life the deficient sense of human freedom and the rights of conscience were there also but in a narrower sphere the seeds were being sown of one of the greatest religious revivals the world has seen the line which events took in spain could not fail in time to react upon the catholic reform movement in italy and that reaction became more and more powerful the inspiration of the movement in italy was at first indigenous but in time the gloomy fanaticism of spain overshadowed it and crushed out its more humane elements but in its beginnings the movement was a spontaneous expression of the single desire to make the catholic religion once more a reality 
with many it took the form of a restoration of the primitive austerity of the older orders gregorio cortesi recalled to its ideal the italian benedictine congregation reorganized in fifteen o four and oppressed upon its duty of supporting the church by its learning the Camel de Lacy, an offshoot of the Benedictines founded by St. Romuald in the 11th century, were reformed by Paolo Giustiani, a member of noble Venetian family. A number of these monks, under his direction, led an aesthetic life at Masaccio, between Ancona and Camerino. After his death in 1528, Montecaroni became the center of the new congregation, and the order spread rapidly throughout southern Europe. The old monastic orders, however, only set an example, which, powerful for good though it was, went but a little way in restoring Catholicism among the people. It was reserved for the Franciscans and for new religious societies to bring about a revival of popular religion. In 1526, Matteo de Bassi was authorized by Clement VII to found a reformed branch of Franciscans, pledged to revive the simple rule of their founder. They became known as Capuchins from their garb. Simple and superstitious, they appealed to the populace, and they became the spiritual guides and counselors of the people. Religion was vulgarized in their hands, and their influence was not altogether for good. Some of them embraced Protestant ideas, and for a time the order was viewed with some suspicion. But to the Capuchins more than perhaps to any other organization does the Roman Church owe the preservation of the mass of the Italian people in her fold. The older orders of monks and friars were, however, unequal by themselves to achieving the regeneration of Catholicism. The secular clergy in many parts had fallen into a lower state of degradation than the regulars, and it was one of the chief concerns of the Oratory of Divine Love to bring the parish priests to a sense of their high calling. Two of the members of the oratory, Gitano de Ten and Giovanni Pietro Carafa, took the first active steps to effect this reformation. Gitano de Ten, of an ancient family of Vicenza, was one of the pronotari participante at the papal court under Julius II. The life, however, became distasteful to him, and he accordingly resigned his post and took orders. He was one of the earliest members of the oratory. After a short time, he left Rome and worked in Vicenza and Venice, preaching to the people and doing good works. His experience there taught him that the weakness of the church was largely due to the inefficiency and corruption of the parochial clergy. Accordingly, in 1523, he returned to Rome with the idea of founding a society to remedy this evil. There he again met Carafia, who at once fell in with his views, and the two worked together to achieve this end. The canons regular of St. Augustine may have suggested Gitano X the order which they had obtained the permission of Clement VII to found in 1524. The new society was to consist of ordinary secular clergy bound together by the three monastic vows. They were to be, in short, secular priests with the vows of monks. The reformation of the clergy and a life of contemplation were to be the objects of the society. The new society is important, not so much on account of its own work among the secular clergy as for the example it set. It always remains small in numbers, 
and its membership came to be confined to the nobility. Though the original conception was due to Gitano de Ten, yet it was from Carafia that the society took its name. It became known as the Order of Theatines after his See of Tiete. It was no doubt largely due to his administrative ability and power of organization that the society was a success. It found many imitators. A similar society of regular clerks was founded at Somasca in the Milanese, 1528, by Girolamo Miani, son of a Venetian senator. And at Milan, the Order of Barnabites was established about 1530 by three noble ecclesiastics, Zachariah, Ferrari, and Moregia. The Barnabites were extremely successful in their labors, and their society carried into practice far and wide the scheme which Gitano de Ten had been the first to conceive for the improvement of the secular clergy. Quietly and unostentatiously, with little active assistance from the papal court, the regeneration of Catholicism in Italy was thus begun. Carafia was the guiding genius in the work, so far as a movement which was so wide can be connected with a single man, and it was pregnant with importance for the future that he was growing more and more estranged from the liberal Catholic reformers, with whom he had at one time worked in the Oratory of Divine Love. The path which Contarini and his friends were indicating, greater freedom and discipline, reduction of papal prerogative, and a considerable restatement of traditional dogma, meant a break with the past, which, when its full import dawned upon them, shocked Carafia and those who clung to medieval Christianity. The Radisbon proposals of 1541 opened their eyes, and the parting of the ways came. The group of Catholic reformers split in two, and the division paralyzed for a time the work which had been begun with the Concilium de Emirata Ecclesia, until it was clear that a reform of morals would not entail any surrender of medieval theology and of the medieval system of church government. Carafia and friends made impossible any general scheme of reform. The new orders, the Theatines, the Barnabites, and the Capuchins were restoring Catholicism rapidly on the old lines. Their work went steadily on, and meanwhile it was enough to wait. They were doing the work as Carafa, and not as Contarini wanted it to be done. The progress made, however, was not as rapid as might have been wished, until two agencies appeared upon the scene, which became the most potent of the forces that regenerated Catholicism, and breathed into it a militant spirit, making all conciliation impossible. The Inquisition, the holy office for the universal church, and the Society of Jesus were the new organizations which achieved the work. End of section 67